Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Please give a warm Dallas welcome to Dr. Tony Weichner. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, not the least of which is the weather. I left, it was about 28 degrees this morning in Boston. That's what they call spring in New England. But more seriously, my pleasure in being here is in support of educators concerned with helping young people understand this world for which we must prepare. How many of you are educators in this room? Past, present, or future? Wonderful. Congratulations. How many of you are business leaders? Raise your hands. Terrific. How many of you are concerned parents? Raise your hands. Very good. So you understand you can be in more than one category. So you know far better than I the importance of your mission in helping young people understand this increasingly complex world and in really thinking of themselves as global citizens. The only thing I remember from high school is my experience in Model United Nations. In fact, it made a profound impression on me. So that's one reason why I'm very happy to be here in support of your work. Having said that, I think that the challenge for the World Affairs Council must be much more than simply educating young people about the world much more. Our capacity to influence global affairs for the good is heavily, if not almost entirely, dependent upon our economic vitality. We are a nation at risk, not so much militarily today as economically. And so that's what I want to talk about. Work, and so our economy, is changing far, far more quickly than you can possibly imagine. Traditional careers, law, medicine, accounting, being fundamentally altered, if not eliminated. 30% drop in the numbers of applicants to law schools in the last year. Entire areas of medicine, like radiology, are no longer viable for medical school students. What's happening? What's happening, quite simply, is that at an astounding rate, routine jobs are disappearing, offshored or automated, one or the other, or some combination. So that's a, a challenge for this generation, and it's a challenge for the future of our economy. Fundamentally, that is coupled with and enabled by another extraordinary development, and that is the rapid commoditization of knowledge. Knowledge today is free. It's like air, it's like water, on every internet-connected device, growing exponentially, changing constantly. How many of you educators are using Khan Academy in your classrooms in one way or another? I've heard about Saul Khan was just here recently, I gather. Well, there are about six million students a month downloading hundreds of thousands of lessons every single month, not just in this country. Now, for the first time, that knowledge is available everywhere everywhere. 
Fundamentally, as a result of the commoditization of knowledge, the world simply no longer cares how much our kids know. That's, that's right here. What the world cares about, the competitive advantage, is what you can do with what you know. And that is a completely different and brand new education problem. Because to transform knowledge demands that you have skill and will in addition to content knowledge. So I'm going to talk about skill and will. Twelve years ago or so, no, I guess it was ten, I read The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. How many of you have read that book or are familiar with it? Most of you, I expect so. Terrific. Scared the heck out of me, frankly, because Friedman was the first person to help me understand how quickly this world was flattening and changing, how quickly jobs were being automated or offshored. So I decided to do a different kind of research. I decided to talk to a wide variety of senior executives to understand what are the skills that matter most today? What do they see as the gaps? I talked to community leaders. I talked to college teachers. I talked to recent graduates of school, asking them in what ways they felt most and least well prepared. And I came to understand that there's a set of core competencies every young person must be well on the way to mastering before the end of high school. Not just to get and keep a decent job, but equally important, to be a lifelong learner and to be an active and informed citizen in the 21st century. The skills for work and the skills for citizenship, I would argue, have converged for the first time in human history. I call them the seven survival skills. Very briefly, they are number one, critical thinking and problem solving. You know, for us, critical thinking in education is a buzzword. You ask us as educators, what is critical thinking? We're likely to say, well, hmm, um, let me see now. Yeah, critical thinking is sort of like thinking critically. It's kind of a circular thing. You know why? Because it's not on the test. We've never had to really define it. But when I asked those leaders what they thought critical thinking meant, over and over again, I got the same answer. They said critical thinking is all about asking the right questions, asking really good questions. Because for them, problem identification is even more important than problem solving. And to identify the right problem, you've got to ask the right questions. Second skill, collaboration across networks and leading by influence. Increasingly, all work is being done collaboratively. You know that. But more and more, it's being done virtually around the world. Folks at IBM have a new problem. They bring together deliberately people from all of their different centers around the globe to work on that problem together virtually as a team because they want to create solutions that will work in more than one place, culture, or country. First prerequisite for that kind of teamwork is deep appreciation of differences, cultural, religious, ethnic. It's one reason why your work is so important with the council. But the way those teams are led has changed. They're no longer led by supervisors with positional authority. They're led by peers through influence. Two little problems here. How are we in education, which is arguably the most isolated profession in modern work life, going to ensure that all students learn how to be a good team player when we them, ourselves have had almost no experience with teamwork in our workplace? And how are we going to ensure that all students learn how to lead peers through influence? Third survival skill, agility and adaptability. Pace of change, complexity of problems, demands that people be agile, adaptable. Fourth survival skill, initiative and entrepreneurialism. It was Mark Chandler, who was then vice president and general counsel of Cisco Systems, 
high-tech multinational company, who talked to me about how that entrepreneurial spirit and sense of initiative is critical and constantly in jeopardy in large organizations like his. He said to me, if I have an employee who sets and meets five goals, 100%, that's no longer good enough. He said, if on the other hand, I have an employee who sets 10 stretch goals, but perhaps only succeeds at seven or eight, he or she is a hero. But think for a moment. What would that person be as a student in our schools, having failed two or three out of 10? C, B student? I'm going to come back to this issue of failure in a minute. Sixth survival skill, oh, I'm sorry, fifth survival skill is effective oral and written communication. And it is the number one complaint of both college teachers and employers. In fact, there was a senior executive at Dell Computer who said to me, you know the reason these kids can't write? And he's talking about college graduates. He said, it's because they don't know how to think. They don't know how to reason. They don't know how to construct a coherent argument. And then he said something amazing that kind of warmed my recovering high school English teacher's heart. He said, the other problem is they do not know how to write with voice, meaning to put their own passion and perspective into their communications, so as to be persuasive. Sixth survival skill, accessing and analyzing information, growing constantly on every internet-connected device, you have to ask them, what is the purpose of memorization in the 21st century? Not to say there isn't one, but we need to rethink fundamentally. How many of you had to memorize the periodic table in high school? Raise your hands. Chemistry, we all did, right? So come on, quick, tell me, how many are there? Elements, I mean. Uh, you just took that class, you don't count. <laughs> Whatever number you came up with except him, and even you are probably wrong, because two more were added last month. And let's see, uh, state capitals, who would care to recite them from memory while I Google them? Let's see who's quicker. You understand the point. Mem the accessing and analyzing information, not memorizing it, is the most important competency when it's all on the internet. Last survival skill, curiosity and imagination. Now, how many of you have read Dan Pink's last book, A Whole New Mind? Raise your hands. So you know he talks about the importance of curiosity and imagination in the context of a robust and sophisticated consumer economy where we consumers want products and services that are more creative or beautiful or empathetic. But I've come to see the need for curiosity and imagination in a completely new light. So I wrote this book called The Global Achievement Gap. And I define the global achievement gap simply as the gap between the new skills all students need for careers, learning, and citizenship versus what is taught and tested even in our very best private and public schools. Because what I see quite simply around the world and even the very best schools is only one curriculum. It's called test prep. Now, I believe in accountability. But we're trying to do accountability with predominantly multiple choice, factual recall, computer scored tests that tell us absolutely nothing about work or citizenship readiness in the 21st century. I'll come back to this theme in a moment. So this book came out four and a half years ago. Two things happened. Good thing and a not so good thing. The good thing was I suddenly began getting requests from all over the world to speak to a wide variety of leadership audiences. An incredible learning opportunity for me. You know, thinking about my model UN experience now living a very different version of that. Having a chance to go to Taiwan, Singapore, Thailand, Bahrain, Spain, England, Finland, all over the world talking with opinion leaders from West Point to Wall Street and countless states and conferences. And everywhere I went, people went like this. Yes, 
They reaffirmed that these, in fact, are the most important competencies or some version of them. But even more importantly, they kept telling me, yes, these skills are far more important than content knowledge. Content knowledge can be learned. These skills are foundational. So that was the good thing. And I was thinking maybe, you know, I've made some kind of a contribution. At least I was having a nice time wandering around the world. But then the other thing happened. I'm talking about the global economic collapse from which we are still struggling. Because for the first time in history, we saw kids come home in America with a brand new BA degree, the ink barely dry, an average of $26,000 of debt in the other hand, and no jobs. Right now today, the combined unemployment and underemployment rate of recent college graduates, guess, guess what it is, 54%. Lots and lots of kids doing internships, lots and lots of kids taking jobs that do not require a BA and don't pay college graduate wages. Even those wages themselves have been depressed 10% in the last six years. What's the problem? Well, you know, for the first time, I began to realize that maybe those skills that I described while absolutely necessary are not sufficient. The world continuing to change. But also, I began to realize some things that, you know, as a recovering high school English teacher, I'm kind of late to the game in understanding. Perhaps all of you knew this already. Did you know, that, for example, that more than 70% of our economy in the last several decades has been based on consumer spending? And did you know that that consumer spending has been fueled increasingly until 2008 by debt? I'm not talking government debt. I'm talking consumer debt. Average savings rate in 2007 was minus 2%. It made me come to feel that maybe we've created an economy based on people spending money they do not have to buy things they may not need, threatening the planet in the process. An economy that more and more economists are beginning to suggest is not sustainable economically, environmentally, spiritually, perhaps. But what's the alternative? Well, the hot word today is the one word answer innovation. The idea being that we create an economy based on more young people solving more problems that need solving around the world, and so doing, generating jobs and wealth. Now, a little problem. We've always been known as a highly innovative country, country that uh, has, until recently, decent infrastructure, uh, strong copyright laws, rule of law, comparatively little corruption. Uh, Good infrastructure. I said the infrastructure, the, the openness of um, freedom of speech, and so on. But what about our education system? If we're going to try to educate many more young people to be creative problem solvers and to bring new possibilities to life, what must we do differently as parents, teachers, mentors, and employers? Are our best colleges doing the job? Trivia Pursuit question of the day. I'll ask and answer it so fast you won't be able to Google it. What do Bill Gates, Edwin Land, the inventor of the Polaroid Instant Camera, Bonnie Raitt, the folk singer, and Mark Zuckerberg all four have in common? I'm sorry, they were not college dropouts. They were Harvard college dropouts. That's different. <laughs> you know, Steve Jobs, he was an ordinary college dropout. You know, Michael Dell, another ordinary college dropout. I love doing that to Harvard. <laughs> But I became very interested in this question. What must we do differently? 
if we want to develop the capabilities of many, many more young people to be creative problem solvers. We are born curious, creative, imaginative. It is in the human DNA. Not to say we're all going to be the next Steve Jobs, but we can contribute new ideas to whatever it is we're doing if we are prepared and developed to do so. Problem is, as Sir Kenneth Robinson says, many of these qualities are schooled out of us. So I took on a very different kind of project, new kind of research. I started interviewing a wide variety of young people in their 20s who were highly innovative, some in science, technology, and engineering, some in the arts, some who were social entrepreneurs and innovators. Wanted to try to understand the ecosystem that had helped them to become innovators. I interviewed all of their parents to see if I could discern patterns of parenting. I then asked each one of them, was there a teacher or a mentor who'd made a significant difference in their lives? All could name one, most all. Some could not name many more than one. I interviewed all those teachers. And in the process of interviewing those teachers, I stumbled upon something that truly shocked me. In every single case, the teachers who had made the greatest difference in the lives of these young people was an outlier in his or her education setting, teaching in ways that were very different than her, his or her peers, probably much like our Teacher of the Year today, if we were to have that conversation. I see her smiling now. The fascinating thing was that they were outliers in very similar ways, from elementary school all the way to graduate school, teaching in ways that were very similar. Then I went to those few schools that have a deserved reputation for teaching innovation, and there aren't many of them. The brand new Olin College of Engineering in Massachusetts. The MIT Media Lab, also a new program and initiative. The D School at Stanford. High Tech High in San Diego. Some outstanding early elementary education programs. And what I discovered was the same kind of teaching going on across that age spectrum in all of those schools, consistent with what my outlier teachers were doing in their classrooms. So I've come to understand that the culture of schooling, as we continue to practice and promote it, is fundamentally and radically at odds with a culture of learning that develops the capacity to innovate that is, in fact, America's future. Five contradictions came out through my research. Number one, we celebrate and promote individual achievement in our schools, understand? You know, we sort and grade kids according to their levels of achievement. Little problem. Innovation is a team sport. And so every teacher whom I interviewed or observed built accountable teamwork, not just group work, accountable teamwork into every single assignment they gave. Number two, we talk about compartmentalizing knowledge, the, the Carnegie unit system for compartmentalizing and, and segregating all knowledge. We talk about the idea of college majors, of being a specialist in something. But here's the problem. While expertise is important, innovation happens at the boundaries of academic disciplines. A cross-disciplinary approach to problem solving is critical. As Judy Gilbert said to me, if there's, and she was then director of talent at Google, she said, if there's one thing educators must understand is that problems can neither be understood nor solved within the bright lines of individual academic disciplines. Contradiction number three is the process of education. Process of learning is a profoundly passive experience in far too many classes. Maybe that's, in fact, where we learn to be such good little consumers, because we spend so much of our school day consuming. But not so in these classrooms for young innovators. In every case, the emphasis was on creating, not consuming. 
creating new answers to open-ended questions, creating real products and services for real audiences in every single case. Last two contradictions I think are the most challenging of all for us, because contradiction number four is all about the, the risk-averse nature of schooling. We penalize failure. We create an environment where compliance for kids, for teachers, is the norm. Increasingly so with all of these high-stakes tests. The problem is innovation demands that you take risks, make mistakes, and learn from them. I went to IDEO, the most innovative design company in the world. They told me their company motto is fail early and fail often. Heck of a way to run a company. But what they meant was there is no innovation without trial and error. We talk about research and development. That's a fancy word for trial and error. I went to the D School at Stanford, heavily influenced by IDEO, fascinating interdisciplinary program. Group of teachers sitting around, we were talking, and they were saying, yeah, you know, we're kind of thinking F is the new A. I wouldn't recommend taking that back to your schools just yet. Needs a little more work. But the point was, they were saying that the kid who may have tried something but, quote, failed, may have learned more from the risk-averse straight A student who never tried anything new. Finally, talked to a young woman at the Olin College of Engineering who put it all in perspective for me. She said, you know, we don't even talk about failure here at Olin. We move from one class to the other, and we're always talking about iteration. My new favorite word, iteration. The idea of moving from 1.0 to 2.0, the idea of trying something, figuring out what worked and what didn't, and applying what you've learned through careful reflection to the next effort. And I think if there's one thing that schools need to start doing tomorrow, it's to get rid of the F word and bring in iteration. Thinking about how do you learn from mistakes and apply what you've learned without penalty. Last contradiction, motivation. It's the kind of skeleton in the closet in education that we almost never talk about, student motivation. And yet the research is stunning. Gallup survey of a month ago of students Student engagement in learning goes from 80% in fifth grade to fewer than four in 10 in high school. Because they're doing all kinds of things for which they have no understanding of why. Why should they memorize this for a test? Makes no sense to them. Learning things that they feel no engagement with whatsoever. And we rely heavily on these extrinsic incentives to motivate that learning. A's and F's, carrots and sticks, money for good grades. But here's what I discovered, that in every single case, these young innovators whom I profiled were far, far more intrinsically motivated, wanting to make a difference more than they want to make money. And I find it to be generally true of the millennials as a generation. They want to, make, they want to create, not consume. They want to collaborate, not control. They want to make a difference in the world. But then when I look back at these particular innovators, to try to see if I could discern patterns of parenting and teaching that had really made the greatest difference in strengthening intrinsic motivation, I found another pattern. Both parents and teachers had intentionally and explicitly encouraged three things, play, passion, and purpose. Parents encouraged more exploratory play, uh, less structured time, fewer toys, toys without batteries, getting outside more, limiting screen time. Teachers bringing the value of play into the classroom, 
It was Ed Carey who teaches a sequence of courses called Smart Product Design to engineering students at Stanford who talked about bringing an element of whimsy, his word, into every assignment he gave. As these young people grew older, their parents were intentionally trying to create a buffet of options, not to build a resume for these young people, but rather to discover what was it that truly interested these young people. Because they understood that for a young person to find and pursue a passion was more important than academic achievement for its own sake. Because that's where discipline, tenacity, and what we're calling grit comes from most easily, from inside, not outside. Teachers the same. They realized the importance of self-motivated learning and built time into their units of study for students to ask their own questions, design their own investigations, or pursue a project or an idea of interest to them. And as these young people grew older, what was so striking is their, their, their passions morphed. They evolved. They didn't stay the same. And the adults had the wisdom to not pigeonhole them at a too young age. But in every case, they matured into a deeper sense of purpose a desire to in some way give back or make a difference that were explicit goals of both the parents and the teachers who simply communicated the idea that we are not here on this earth just for ourselves, that we have in some way, even in a very small way, a responsibility to give back. So let me try to just briefly explore what may be some of the implications for education. And I'm going to invite you to talk at your tables for a couple of minutes, and then let's have a conversation. I want to hear your questions and your concerns to the extent that we have time. But let me throw out a couple of ideas to get us started. First of all, what gets tested is what gets taught, period, the end. You want to change what's taught in classrooms? You have to change the accountability system. We desperately need accountability 2.0. What does that mean? It means using selectively very high quality tests like the college and work readiness assessment. It means more importantly, in working with students to develop a body of work that shows evidence of mastery of skills. I'm talking about every student starting first grade with a digital portfolio that follows them through school where they are collecting evidence of mastery of critical thinking, collaboration, communication, and creativity skills. And that work is audited by outsiders for performance standards, and it's worked on continuously by teachers. To do that, we're going to have to invest in educational R&D. I want to see lab schools sponsored by all large school districts or consortia of companies, nonprofits, and school districts working together to create transparent existence proofs and laboratories of innovation for education. You know, Microsoft's R&D budget is 17%. Google's way over 20%. What's your school district's R&D budget? As superintendents, they laugh at me. Yeah, it's zero. Less than zero because you've just been cut. So there is no innovation without investment in R&D. And educational R&D is exhibit A. Well, I'll throw out one more quick idea. Then I want to hear your thoughts. To the issue of motivation. What if we, uh, how many of you know the Google rule? Raise your hands. Well, here's the deal. You go to work for Google, you have permission to play on company time one day a week, or its equivalent. Google has discovered by giving 20% time to their employees, that opportunity to pursue their own interests and ideas has been the single greatest source of new ideas and innovations. And they're not the first company. 3M, the mining company, has been doing this for decades. So here's my modest proposal. What if we said to every student, you're going to have 20% of your school time to work on your projects, 
your ideas, your interests. Ask your own questions. You know, you start in great preschools like Montessori or Reggio Emilio, it's not 20% time, it's 100% time. That's how learning happens in those classrooms. So if you start school kids that way, and you create accountability through the digital portfolios, and teachers will meet with kids and talk about what their learning goals are, and then later sit down and talk with them about what they learned, what worked, and what didn't, and what their new learning goals are, I think we're going to see a generation of profoundly differently motivated kids in school. Kids who can ask their own questions, design their own research, pursue their own interests. Well, let me stop at this point. I'm going to invite you to just take two or three minutes to talk to your neighbor at your tables and talk with them about what, what, what you agreed with, what you disagreed with, but most importantly, what are your questions? What are your concerns? Then we'll have some conversation. Okay, I hate to interrupt, because clearly you're finding a lot to talk about, but I really want to give folks an opportunity to ask questions or make comments. I just invite you to keep them brief. And if I'm correct, we have some mics that will wove, is that right? There's a gentleman there with a mic and a lady over there with a mic. Raise your hand and the mic will come to you. Right, this gentleman here. We sure appreciate you having you here in Fort Worth and Dallas. Uh, and what I'd like to, to ask is you mentioned Olin, which is a new college that started with nothing there. You mentioned High Tech High, which is a new school that started with nothing there. The D school that started with nothing there. I see these innovative places being newly developed. Right. Have you had any examples of schools where the culture has actually changed and moved forward? There is a group of school districts under the umbrella of a new organization called Ed Leader 21, uh, which I highly, highly recommend, that is working with school districts all over the country to transform their districts into innovation zones, and specifically to figure out how to teach and assess uh, the, the, the four C's, critical thinking, collaboration, communication, and creativity. So the short answer is absolutely, I've seen that. I've worked with some of those superintendents. They are extraordinary. But clearly, it's much harder to do that than to do a startup. Other questions, comments, concerns? Let's hand over there. Oh, you got it here, sir. Yeah. Excuse me. I have a question, and that is, what about the role of the universities that are teaching our teachers? <laughs> and I'm seeing. I have to go now. <laughs> I'm seeing that as as kind of a you know something that's missing. In Couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't agree more. I think schools of ed, for the most part, are disasters, including my own. Uh, there's only one school of education I recommend with enthusiasm. It's High Tech High's own graduate school of education, which they started because they couldn't find teachers with the right skills. Having said that, I've read about some of the new work at UT Austin, which I find very interesting. Particularly, they've got uh, teachers learning to become teachers of engineering, which I think is fabulous for schools. Other questions, comments? Um, one of the questions I had was if, if students start to kind of design their own curriculum and move in this innovative format, do you have gaps in standards and content that are never covered? You know, are you going to create a generation of kids who don't know certain skills because we've kind of moved to this innovative format? Some of the different schools I've looked at seem to be allowing kids to design curriculum, follow their passions, but it seems like there may be gaps in knowledge that they're not addressing. Yeah. You know, there are three things we all need to be prepared for the 21st century, or young people need. They need content knowledge. Of course that matters for cultural literacy, 
you know, just for basic orientation to the world. You know, when a few students heard that the Russians had invaded Georgia a few years ago, they were worried South Carolina might be next. <laughs> Clearly, they've not taken any of your programs. But so knowledge matters. But skills matter more, as I've tried to suggest, because knowledge has become a commodity. You can look it up. And, of the, and the third and most important is motivation. Because if you are intrinsically motivated, you will continuously acquire new content knowledge and new skills. I did not graduate from high school with all the content knowledge I needed. I dropped out of three colleges and didn't graduate college with very much content either. Nobody inter interestingly ever asks me where I did my undergraduate work, which is a lucky thing. But my point is that you know, when I started this new book project, I didn't know very much about innovation either. We continuously learn new content. And most importantly, we learn it quicker and we retain more of it because we have a reason to learn it. And you, this is impossible to give kids all the content knowledge they need. We've got to stop trying that. We've got to think about what's foundational. Statistics versus a calculus, for example. Verbal fluency in a foreign language versus grammar, for example. Other questions, comments? Yes, sir. Oh, wait, can, can you wait for a mic, sir? The lady right behind you will give you one. I want to make sure everybody hears your question. So the, the innovative things you've talked about is great for the student while they're in the classroom, but then they go back into these environments that are detrimental to that. What, what have you come across to uh, help educate the parents and the, uh, the other peripheral things of the student? Well, I, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that because what we don't talk about in this country anymore is poverty. We glorify Finland, and I made a documentary film about Finland's education being the system being the best in the world. It absolutely is. But their childhood poverty rate is 3.4%. Ours is 22%. The achievement gap is a great deal about poverty. And not to say that that is an excuse or that that is the only problem, but I think we have got to understand that simply giving more kids more tests is not going to solve poverty. That we're going to have to take a whole community approach to development as Jeffrey Canada did in New York. Can't, educators cannot do it by themselves. And it's not to say the parents are bad parents. They want to be good parents. But if you're a single parent and you work in two jobs or you're scared to death about how you're going to make the next rent, how are you going to make time? How do you even know how important it is to read to your kids? Other questions or comments? We have a young lady here. Okay, you got one back there. Good afternoon. Um, uh, my high school, we partake in the International Baccalaureate Program, and it really reflects everything that you've said so far today in your speech. And I was just wondering, how would you promote creativity and innovation without creating a pedestal? Because I realize that um, you do want to promote creativity and innovation, but most of my classes already have everything that you're talking about. And the classes that don't have it, they're, it's just this whole concept of weeding out. And I don't understand how you can go about um, giving the same opportunities of creativity and innovation to every child. That's a great question. It's, again, it gets to the equity and the poverty question. Uh, joining the International Baccalaureate program is expensive. I think it's a great program. It's too bad that it costs so much. I think it's far better than advanced placement programs. How do we make that available to every kid? I think that's a policy question. But above and beyond that, what I would like to see as a part of an R&D effort is we establish funds for teams of teachers or 
teams of teachers working with community members or, or nonprofit groups to apply to, to create new interdisciplinary courses, to work with digital portfolios, to create teacher digital portfolios as a basis for assessing teacher competency. So I think part of the answer to your question is not just to rely on us good established programs like IB, but to incent education innovation from the bottom up and to support it from the top down. Uh, we've got a question here, oh, back there, okay? This question here and here, all right. Hey, Dr. Wagner, I wanted to uh, ask you, you know, you talked about us being the best educated nation in the world, but, you know, all the studies say we're about 25th out of the top 33 uh, industrialized nations. So if that's in fact the case, what's the, what's the empirical evidence that we're number one? I never suggested that. Well, you I'm sorry, I may have been a misunderstanding. I may have misspoken. We used to be number one in college and high school completion rate. Now we're 15th. Absolutely. We're absolutely not even close to number one. What I may have, uh, and may have misspoken, but what I was, had said at some point is that we have long been known as the most innovative country in the world. And I asked, is that because of or in spite of our education system? So where do you think we are in innovation today? We're still ranked fairly highly, but there are other countries that have surpassed us, Finland being an example. Higher, more highly rated by uh, different global organizations in both innovation and entrepreneurship. We had this unquestioned advantage coming out of World War II, didn't we? We were the only intact economy, we had the most robust manufacturing capability, and we had the best education system in the world coming out of World War II. We had no competitors. They were destroyed around the world or severely weakened. Guess what? Everybody's caught up and now they're passing us. Now it's time for us to go entirely to a new level. That's our challenge. Incremental improvement will not get us there. You know, we had to reinvent the one-room schoolhouse in response to a, a, an, an industrial economy, right? And we created the factory model, assembly line schools that we still have a century and a half later. And they were, they were good for their time. But now it's a century later, and we don't need factory model schools for an industrial economy. We don't have an industrial economy. We need to have an, a knowledge and innovation-driven economy, which demands a fundamentally different approach to education. We have time for just one more question, I think. I was told 1.20 was my deadline. I run an edutech startup, and I'm constantly frustrated how much risk aversion there is in schools. Yes. Obviously, the entire school system cannot be run as a purely private enterprise. So how would you instill a culture of risk-taking and competition at that level? Yeah. Well, I think that's exactly the right question. I, there are only three grades I can justify as a teacher. A, B, or incomplete. I'm talking about the merit badge approach to learning. So the whole idea is that your work is incomplete until you reach a certain performance standard and earn your merit badge. There's no failing. There's, there's trial and error, but the error is not penalized because you're still working towards a level of proficiency or competency, which is the B standard. Now, A, I think, should be reserved for true human excellence. And there isn't that much of it, right? So it's really changing the incentive structure in education, I think. I've overstayed my welcome, I suspect. No, not at all. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. My great pleasure. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.